turn the mic on now and you really need to cough. <coughs> Sorry, everyone. <laughs> it's not coronavirus. Okay, um, so our tough topic title tonight, it's a tongue twister for you, enjoy that. Tough topic title tonight is, um, is divorce a sin? Um, so it's a difficult topic, um, it's been difficult to prepare. Um, sometimes we come to church and the message is like cakes and flowers and pies, and it's really lovely. Um, and sometimes we come to church and it's a cauliflower. And today um, it's a cauliflower message. Um, I think that a lot of the tough topic topics are cauliflower messages, but cauliflower uh, is really good for you. So uh, hopefully <laughs> this is good for you too. Um, so I want to be really honest with you from the outset. Um, I've been divorced. I don't know how many of you know that. It's not exactly something that I shout about from the rooftops. Um, it wasn't exactly a highlight of my life. I'll spare you the gory details, but um, it wasn't my plan to be a divorcee single mum at 23. And I'm certainly sure that it wasn't God's um, intent either. So let's think about what God has to say um, to us. We're really lucky, actually, with this topic. Sometimes when we look at the tough topics, it's really hard to find a Bible verse or a Bible passage that relates to it, because some of these tough topics just didn't seem to exist when it was Jesus' time. But for us today, we're lucky. Uh, the Bible talks about divorce, so we can easily find it. It's often headed, divorce. It's really easy. Um, so we're going to look at Matthew 5, which I'm sure some of you will have guessed we were going to. Uh, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's where Jesus is really putting in perspective what Christianity looks like in real time for their culture. He's trying to close the gap between what they think culturally and what he thinks for the kingdom of God. And I think that that gap still needs closing for us today. Um, so we're going to start in verse 31 of chapter 5, and then I'm actually going to jump straight on to Matthew chapter 19, because the Pharisees come for like a little follow-up question, and Jesus has a little follow-up answer, and um, it kind of slots together. So I'll start with Matthew 5. Uh, verse 31, it says, um, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And now in chapter 19, it's quite long, um, but I want us to get it all, so bear with me. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who chose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. 
So Jesus is speaking to them, um, and there's one thing he really wants to get across. There's this fundamental truth that he needs them to know, and that is that marriage is God's idea. I'll say it again. Marriage is God's idea. He's the creator, and since he's the creator, and since it's his idea, he gets to establish the terms and the rules by which it's lived out. He casts the vision, and he knows what it looks like. So as the Pharisees try to bring him into a conversation about how to get someone divorced and how to deal with the messy reality that um, human beings get themselves into, he says, yeah, 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 that's all well and good. But let me take you back to the beginning. Let me show you God's intent at the beginning, because it looked like this. So we need to do the same today. We need to take ourselves back and look at God's idea of marriage because that's where Jesus went. And Jesus immediately points them to the Garden of Eden. He tells them, you have to go back even before Moses. It's not about Moses. It's about God's intent at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and unite with his wife. Jesus paints this picture as a picture of oneness. He says, you will become one flesh. Now, immediately we're all thinking sex. It's not. He's not talking about sex. Of course, sex is part of it. Sex sex is an expression of it. It's a demonstration. But it's about something deeper, a deeper reality of oneness. There's something much, much deeper going on. So don't get married for sex. It isn't about sex. That's not marriage. Jesus is talking about going deeper in this oneness. It's like you're on the same team. There are times it doesn't feel like that, though, does it, in marriage? times like it feels like you're not on the same team. Um, so when I work with the kids, uh, often the boys play football, and especially when they're kind of seven or eight, it seems to be the worst time, they're playing, and they seem to forget they're on the same team. So they're all like kicking and elbowing, trying to get at the ball, and they forget to look up and see that actually they're all wearing the same bib. Um, and we're on the side as leaders, and we're like, same team, same team! And sometimes, for some of us, That's what the Holy Spirit's doing in our houses. He's looking at us and he's going, guys, same team, same team. We're all scrambling so much to get the ball because they feel the spirit of scarcity and not of abundance. They're worried, if I give you the ball, I don't trust you to play fair with me and pass it back. If I give you the ball, you might not aim for the same goal as me. And some of us, we're doing marriage like that. We're doing marriage out of scarcity and not out of abundance. And God is saying in marriage, in this oneness, there should be abundance of trust and grace, so that I know if I give you the ball, I can trust you to go in the same direction as me. I can trust you to pass it back to me. I can trust you to shoot for the same goal. So I'm just going to be really honest with you again. When me and Matt argue at home, 99% of the time, I'm right. (laughs) I'm just going to confess it because, you know, I need to be humble. I'm right 99% of the time. So obviously that's not true. (laughs) It's almost true, but it's not true. Um, Being right is a really dangerous position to take. Um, This is actually a bit of a revelation to me because I am right most of the time. But I've realized that if I'm always right, then Matt is always wrong. Uh, So if I'm always winning, Matt's always losing. And that means Matt's a loser. I don't want to be married to a loser. We're too busy trying to work out how to win that we forget that we're supposed to be won. Do you care more about making sure that you've won or making sure that you are won? The goal isn't ever to win. The goal is to be won. Because if you are won, then you will win. You will win way more games as one united team than as you out there elbowing everyone out of the way. This is the vision that God set out at the beginning. 
He says, I want you to come together to be a full reflection of the glory of God in how you live sacrificially, how you submit to one another. And I know submit, that's a really like word we don't like, everyone poo-poos on it, but it's not about women submitting to men alone. If you read Ephesians, um, I think it's chapter 5, I should have written it down, um, it says that uh, you submit to one another. It was never this upside-down kind of woman submitting to man. It's about the Trinity. It's about God. It's about Jesus. It's about the Holy Spirit. It's about oneness. It's mutual. The submission to the Father, the acknowledgement of the Son, this beautiful dynamic Jesus. And he says, marriage is a display of what I'm doing in the kingdom. People should see your marriage and know there must be a God somewhere, not because of your perfection, but because of your submission, because of your honor, because of your love, because of your sacrifice. Why would you give all that up? Because we have a commitment to be one. We live in a really selfish society, and our society tells us that I bring mine and you bring yours, um, and that's mine and that's yours, and that's not what marriage is about. There isn't a mine, there isn't a yours, it's just a oneness. That's God I, God's idea. And if it is his idea, then we don't get to go ahead and change the rules. We don't get to go and decide that the, the terms aren't good enough and that we don't like it. And that's what's happening in the passages we read. He's talking to the Jewish leaders, and there were two schools of thought for the Jewish leaders. There was one side that held marriage in such high regard that it was almost impossible to get a divorce. And then there was this other side who said that all you have to do is get a certificate. And basically what you had to do is write down the reason you wanted to get a divorce and get two people to sign it, um, and off you could go. Uh, and it meant that people were doing it for any kind of reason. So a man could kind of say, hey, do you know what? She's not as pretty as she was 10 years ago. I'll just divorce her. Uh, she's not cooking what I like anymore. I'll divorce her. She's not funny. I'll divorce her. She's got a mustache. I'll divorce her. Anything he wanted. And I'm saying he on purpose because she couldn't. It was very rare for a woman to be able to divorce a man because that wasn't what she could do. The man could divorce for any reason. The woman, not so much. But then there was another side. On the Roman side, the Roman culture had this third idea. And they thought that the wife at home, she was there to you know, do the cooking, look after the children, make sure everything was in order. And then the man, he could go out and have as many other women as he wanted around the town for his pleasure. So it was really common for this man to have his wife at home, but then also all these other wives. And he didn't have to divorce any of them because this was the wife and these were the other women. Um, so that's what Jesus is looking at. He's come in, he's looking and he's seeing that the people have changed the fundamentals of the game. They've changed the rules. What they did with marriage is they saw God's standard and they thought, hmm, I don't think I can reach that. So they slowly, they started to lower it. They started saying, let's lower the standard. Let's lower the commitment. Let's change the rules a little bit. You can't change the rules with marriage. You can't come up with your own version because it's more comfortable for you. You can't do with it what you want and expect it to work. It's huge in our culture at the moment because everyone thinks that you can do what you want. Everyone's got their own version, their own idea. They've redefined the terms to make it fit them. See, so I could take that football um, and I could pick it up and I could bounce the football and I could pop it in the, the hoop and I could say, well, this is how we're going to play now. But that's not football. That's basketball. <laughs> not good at that either. Um, or for example, in my car outside, uh, I've got this little black book in the glove compartment, and it tells me all the important things I need to know about my car, like the tire pressure and the fuel and what the little lights on the dashboard mean. Um, but I can do what I want with the car, can't I? I could put as much tire pressure as I want in the car. I can fill it up with diesel instead of petrol if I want to. I can. I can do it. But it's not going to work. 
It's not designed that way. So don't be surprised when our prison population explodes because of fatherlessness, because we've tried to do marriage our way. Don't be surprised when the biggest threat to our children is pornography and sex trafficking, because we've tried to do it our way. Don't be surprised when children's mental health is so high, when younger and younger children are questioning, who am I and how do I fit in here? It's exploding because we've done it the wrong way. You can't have a campaign for sex trafficking on one side and a campaign uh, for freedom and sexuality on another. It's going to explode. It's like putting diesel in my MG. It's not going to make it down the road. It's God I God's idea. God created it. He gave the handbook on how to use it. And if we follow the handbook, then it's going to work because it's God's idea. It's God's standard. That's why Jesus is saying to them, it wasn't like this in the beginning. This isn't how it's supposed to be. Let's go back and let's see how it's supposed to be. And if we know that God is good, which I hope you do, then we can know that God's standard must be good. So why do I follow a standard that's so high, something that's so difficult? Because it's good. How do I know it's good? Because God is good, and I choose to follow a good God's standard. So Jesus is talking to them, and he's frustrated because of what they've done to marriage. And he says to them, the problem is this. Here's the deal. You're asking me, how do I get out? And I want to tell you how to stay in. Some of us in our marriages, we need to change the conversation because we're thinking, how can I get out of this? And God is saying, my son, my daughter, how can we get you to stay in? And it's not about staying in and surviving. It's about staying in and thriving because God is good and it's possible with him. But you should think it's impossible first because in order for it to be possible with God, you've got to realize that it's not about you and that it's impossible if, if it is just about you. Um, I've got three things really quickly that should help you walk in marriage and not walk away from it. Number one, walk in the spirit. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, and since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. If you walk in the spirit, joy comes out of you. Peace comes out of you. Self-control comes out of you. Kindness, it just comes out of you. And your marriage needs joy. Your marriage needs kindness. Your marriage needs gentleness. And that's not going to come from your flesh. If you walk in the flesh, bitterness is going to come out. Anger is going to come out. Hateful little snidey comments are going to come out. You need to walk in the flesh. Some of us, we want, uh, we want our bride to you know, turn it up a little bit on Friday night, but we forget that we need to feed her emotionally, physically first. And ladies, sometimes we just get so obsessed with nagging, don't we? They come home, we're like, oh my goodness, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. Why didn't you do that? Why did you leave the yogurt pot on the dog cage? I say that one a lot. <laughs> and we forget. I mean, who wants to come home to nagging? Men can't survive in a discouraging environment. Nobody can survive in a discouraging environment. We've got to build each other up. We're on the same team. Encourage them to greatness. That's why you're there. Help them be better. I mean, don't you want them to help you be better? When you walk in the presence of God, when you walk in the spirit, self-control, it's just going to come up in your marriage. Kindness, it's going to show up. It's going to be great. And it's not because of the work you've done. It's because of the work of Jesus in your life. Number two, walk in community. Some of you, some of us, this is where we miss it. Our marriage is struggling and nobody knows. You're doing this couple thing in complete isolation. 
You need to get yourself some couples, some other people, some godly people around you. This is what the body of Christ is about. You need community for two things, encouragement and accountability. You need godly friends, people who are going to come and build you up. They're going to encourage you and they're going to push you towards godliness. But you need friends who aren't afraid to step in when the poo hits the fan. You need that friend who's going to come over and say, right, what's going on? This isn't okay. You don't get to leave. You don't get to walk out on your wife and your kids. It's not okay. When's the first counselor appointment? I'm taking you there. I'll drive you. I'll book you in, whatever it is you need. You need those friends who are going to come in and they're going to say, this isn't right. Let me help you. Let me push you forward. Third one, walk in counsel. It's amazing to me how many people I meet um, and they won't go to a counselor. Uh, in marriage, it's usually one spouse and not the other, but he won't go if she won't go. Um, and she doesn't want to go because she doesn't want the counselor all up in her business because it's my business and it's none of your business and you can't help me. So if that's you, if that's any of you, shut up. You're stupid, okay? It's stupid, it's dumb. You don't treat any other area of your life like that. If you've got a broken ankle or a broken foot, you don't say, sorry, doctor, none of your business. If your roof's leaking, you don't say, hey, Mr. Roofer, none of your business. We need to get help. And I know for some of us, that's embarrassing to ask for help. But you know, if, I, if you're having help, if you're getting help, um, then I commend you for the courage to say, it's not working, I need some help. Because there are people out there who want to help you. If your marriage is struggling, get help. Find someone. Can I tell you something? Um, I argue more with Matt than I ever did with my ex-husband. Uh, and some of that is personality. But mostly, I think um, it comes down to love. What's the opposite of love? Anyone? Ah, so I, th I thought you'd say hate. That's good. Because I want to say it's not hate. Um, the opposite of love is indifference. Do you like my unicorn? Um, love is not just full of happy, soothing, empowered emotions. Like my unicorn. Here he is, happy and soothing. Are you ready? Love can also be full of dark and difficult, heartbreaking emotions. Look at him. Isn't he terrifying? Okay? <laughs> and in order to experience love, you've got to be willing to experience the true range of emotions. Okay? Sometimes it feels like this. It's great. And sometimes... It feels like that. <laughs> and when you're willing to accept your partner like this, the intensity of the emotions that come with this, then you experience true love. That's when you're safe. When you're willing to say, do you know what? If you look like that or if you look like that, I still love you. Um, when someone is looking at me and they're like, I love you, you're beautiful, but I also love you when you're being really angry, that's when you're in love. Our love and our desire to stand together in oneness is bigger than that argument we had. It's bigger than that feeling of being right. The heart's a muscle, and every muscle, in order to grow, has to tear a little bit, has to rip a little bit, it's got to break a bit. The more we're willing to feel things like this, the bigger our heart's capacity is going to be, the stronger our heart's going to be. A lot of people think conflict's not okay. Um, a lot of people think it shouldn't be this difficult. Uh, it must mean we're not right for each other. We keep fighting, we keep looking like my evil unicorn. But conflict, let me tell you, I live in a marriage where there's conflict. Conflict is absolutely normal. It's integral. It's important for every relationship. But it's got to be mutual. Okay, that's my side note. If you're in a relationship where you look like this and the other one looks like this, that's not normal. When you can both look like this and still go back to this before you go to bed, it's perfectly normal. Um, and it's healthy because I feel secure knowing that when I look like this and I'm lovely and I'm putting the dinner on the table and Matt loves me, but he also loves me when I'm going, oh my goodness, why have you brought all those stupid rubber things in from the flipping 4G pitch again and why haven't you cleaned them up? Because I know he loves me regardless of my face looking like this. I'm going to put them down now. <laughs> no <way. laughs> Do you know the, when I realized that my previous marriage was irreparable? It was when I was sat in a counselor's office and Mark, that's my ex-husband, 
He couldn't make eye contact with me or the counselor. He couldn't engage in anything that was happening in the room because he just didn't care anymore. He'd checked out. Um, and you know, that was worse than any hateful thing that had ever been said. It was worse than anything that had ever been done. That moment when I looked at him and I thought, you know what, he just, he just doesn't care anymore. That was it, that was the bit that I knew. How do you get back from that when someone actually, there's no emotion there anymore. At least when you look like that angry unicorn, there's something. But when there's nothing, what do you do? So I fight more with Matt now than with my ex-husband, and I'm glad. I'm glad because I know that Matt loves me, but I'm losing my mind. And me and Matt fight because we're different people. We come from different families. We come from different lifestyles. There are different rules about who puts the bins out and who cooks the dinner. But it's always a misunderstanding. It's always, oh, I, just, I didn't feel loved when you did that. I didn't feel seen. I didn't feel appreciated. Love is the easiest and the hardest thing you're ever going to do with your heart. It doesn't take a lot. It takes everything. So some of you, you might be here, you might have been divorced. I've been divorced. Some of you maybe are on the verge of getting a divorce. Some of you were divorced years and years and years ago because your spouse was walking in the spirit and you were walking in the flesh and it all fell apart. Some of you got divorced and you really didn't want to, but your spouse did. Some of you are struggling right now with that reality. And some of you got your divorced, you got remarried, but you still carry that stain, that shame of divorce because you read passages like we've read or maybe you hear uh, speakers or on YouTube or something of people saying, because of your failure in marriage, you're disqualified. Now, I know that sport isn't my thing um, and I talk about sport all the time anyway. Um, but sometimes in sports, there's a foul and that means you're out of the game. You get a red card, you get sent off, and you have to leave the game. And when it comes to marriage, maybe some of you fouled. Maybe some of you did something awful, malicious, mean, whatever it was. It was absolutely devastating, and you're out of the game. But you know what? In the economy of God, when you foul and you leave the game, when you're out of marriage, it doesn't disqualify you from being on the team. Your failure in marriage didn't remove you from the team. You're still his beloved daughter. You're still his son. You're still made in the image of God. And divorce doesn't disqualify you from that grace. And some of you continue to walk in that guilt and that shame and you think you're not welcome by the grace of God. You think the blood of Jesus for some reason doesn't work for divorce. You keep walking in something that he died to wash away. That stain of guilt and shame. Don't let Satan hold you hostage to your failures. If you're here and the enemy is trying to remind you of your stain, let me tell you, it's been washed away. The, who the sun sets free is free indeed. But for some of you, it wasn't your fault. Someone else fouled you, took you out the game, and you're injured, and you're hurting, and you're scared to get back in. I feel you, okay? I feel you. When you love someone, when you give your everything to someone, when you build your future with them, and they change their mind, I said I wouldn't cry. <laughs> I feel you, okay? <laughs> when you get to that point and you think, I'm injured, I can't get back in, what am I going to do? Let me tell you, from one person to another, from someone else who wears those scars, it doesn't define you. Oh gosh, come on Meg, put it together, big girl pants, let's go. <laughs> you are not defined by your pronoun, you are not defined by your marital status, by the surname that comes after your name. You're not defined by the things that you've done wrong or the things that have happened to you. 
You are defined by the creator of the world. And he looks at you, and he can count every hair on your head, and he says, you are lovable, you are good enough, and you are on my team. Thanks, thanks. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We're on the same team, guys. Um, So I'm going to finish now. Becky, Matt, Lucy, uh, Rini, you can come back up. But I just want to say, if you are someone and you're struggling with divorce right now, whether it's uh, you, whether it's a family member, whether it was years and years and years ago and you've got remarried and everything looks fine, or whether it's happening to you right now, don't go away without coming forward for prayer. Um, I'll pray for anyone. I don't care if you're the one at fault. I don't care if, uh, if something's happened to you. I honestly, um, God's grace is big enough for all of us. You're all welcome. So I'm, I'm going to stand over there because I think that this issue um, can be really personal. I don't want anyone to think that coming out the front, we might all think that you've done something awful wrong. I'm going to stand over there. Maybe John will come as well. And, um, and I just want to pray for you because it's tough. All right? I'll pray before we close and I'll hand over. Um, Father God, I thank you that your grace is sufficient for me. And I thank you that your grace is sufficient for everyone in this room. Um, no matter what their pronoun is, no matter what their history is, Father, your grace is enough. Thank you. Amen.